In verse 17, our Lord gives a final conditional benediction. I think I mentioned that before. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's why we sing uh, trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I think you'll see that more of as I just kind of dig this up just a little. Knowing comes first. If you know these things, and we could even say this, and the more you know them, that is, the, the deeper you contemplate the connections to the things that you've seen that are there, that take a little work and cranial exercise, the more you dig deeper into those things, uh, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The grounds for the doing becomes more glorious and things of that nature. Knowing comes first, but knowing is not all there is to learn from, from this, is there? Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if you know these things. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you emulate, if you do, if you act. In fact, um, we can't just do without knowing. We should know what we're doing and why, right? Knowing comes first. Knowing always comes first. But knowing that doesn't lead to doing in light of what we know is never good, is never healthy for the soul. So notice, I call this a benediction. This verse 17. If you know these things, here's the benediction part. Blessed, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. The Lord uses this word in uh, Scripture, Matthew, Luke. Blessed means, sorry, Robert Schuller was right, happy. The Be Happy Attitudes, Robert Schuller's book. Anyway, the papists took over the Crystal Cathedral, by the way, that Robert Schuller used to speak at. He had a book called The Be Happy Attitudes, and I never read the book, but I heard enough of him, and I knew, know what he believed to know that uh, I don't want to read that book. Whatever Jesus meant, it wasn't what most likely he wrote. But blessed does mean happy, but not like just always smiling, but we could say joyful, uh, quiet, contentment of the soul. Blessedness is that quiet contentment of the soul that comes to the soul from God through means. And here, doing brings blessing. Doing doesn't bring salvation. Doing doesn't bring justification. Doing things don't merit heaven or adoption or any of that stuff. But doing does bring to the saved, to the believer, to the Christian, to the lesser, to the justified, to the adopted one, a fullness and a happy flourishing that comes with the doing. I got a good response. Who's going to come and mow my lawn this week then? Cranky Christians are often proud, non-serving Christians. Amen? Cranky Christians, and there are some of those, 
are often proud, self-centered, non-serving Christians. Listen to what John Gill says. 18th century, there's an happiness in doing well and which follows on it, though not for it in a way of merit. Let me say that again, it's old, old language. There is an happiness in doing well and which follows on it, though not for it. Okay? So I'm going to do this good deed in the name of Christ toward another person of Christ. He says, there's this happiness in doing well, which comes after you do the thing, though the happiness comes to you not because you did the thing. What's he saying? This is, this is endowed from above. This is grace. This is not merit. This is not, a, this is not an equation. I'm sad. I'm this. I'm that. The other. I want to be happy. I go out and I do something. Zap. Or automatic, meritorious doing gets me a quiet contentment of soul. And then... If that that was the case, why would we do things? What would be the motive? The getting of a thing, the meriting of something. So let me say it again. There's an happiness in doing well and which follows on it, though not for it, in a way of merit. On the other hand, persons who know and do not are very unhappy. That's an 18th century guy. Persons who know and do not are very unhappy. The happiest people normally at churches are the most active people at the churches, at the church. That's just, sorry, it's my experience. The more active you get in the affairs of the life of the church, the happier you seem to be. Even though you get to see more warts on the people, God gives you grace. Here's that 19th century Scotsman again. He who knows them and does them will be happy indeed. But he who knows them and does not them, does them not will be more unhappy than if he had not known them. I think he's right. If we, as believers, would be happy in Jesus, we must exhibit disinterested, self-sacrificing love as the answer to our self-centered pity parties. Ooh, the pastor's going after us today. Um, well, if the shoe fits, wear it. I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. I just, as a general rule, self-centered people are some of the most pathetic and complaining and whining, sorry, and sniveling, sorry, and self-centered and egotistical, um, unhappy people who when they come into the room or the house or the church building spread a stench, an aroma that's nauseous to the soul. We don't want to be those kind of, you know, pickled Christians. We want to be sweethearts, sweeties, and it takes grace to be that. Now, I want to remind our people 
of something I read from this morning in our confession. If you have a copy of the hymnal, you can turn back to chapter 27. It's page 685. This has two paragraphs of the communion of the saints. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And at the end here, he puts a benediction and all this. You go, look, if you understand what I did and said, blessed are you if you do what you ought to do in light of what I have just done and said. So we have chapter 27, paragraph 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. We have benefits from Christ because we're united to him. And watch this being united to one another in love. So the lesser is united to the greater. And now he's saying, in light of the lesser's union with the greater, the lessers among themselves are also united and also have communion, also share things. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Paragraph two, saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. And in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. So the first part is you're bound to public worship and to church membership at a church that worships God properly, but you're not just bound to that. And you're bound to this. In performing such other spiritual services as tend to the mutual edification of all the lessers, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them, in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We are bound to help brethren in other parts of the world. Nevertheless, their communion, one with another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So we're not talking about communism here. We're talking about liberality, freedom to give and to serve others, especially the saints in their time of need. So what does a scripturally oriented pastor want in his congregation? Uh, what is the chief badge of, that exemplifies Christian discipleship to others? What's the badge? Starts with an L, ends with an E. It's called love. We're going to see that in this text. Christian love exhibited in the presence of lost people will save nobody, but it's a hook. It is doesn't close the deal in, of evangelism, but it's an evangelistic hook. That hooked me. I came to a smaller church, 
And I saw people different ages and different social backgrounds, some with really nice cars and others with not as nice cars, going to the same place, doing the same thing, and talking to each other every week. And I'm going, these are weird people. That was the first thing I thought. But I, you know what? I kept going back, and then I saw this woman, and I married her. That took about a year and a half. What I saw was Christian love, and it, it got me to keep going. And then the law of God tore up my conscience, and I was a, a walking dead man for about three months until now I look back. Effectual calling came upon me. Love, what does a pastor want? Well, I want you to be grounded in truth, of course, and the more grounded in truth you are, the more you'll know the basis for our doing is not to show off. Well, it is to show off. It's to boast in the Lord. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is not because I, like, I enjoy, let's use the illustration from this morning. I just love cleaning toilets, especially toilets that people outside of my family dirty. Really? If you love that, that's kind of odd. Okay? Most, the, the, the reason why somebody might do that is not really because this is my favorite thing to do, but it's, it's a work of necessity. And you know what? I get to take the burden off of somebody else, lighten somebody else's load. I'll just pinch my nose and do it, and then go home and take a really hot shower. The more you're educated, the more good doctrine you have, the more potential for proper motivation in practice. Now listen, I'll close with this. This is in the Bible. Romans chapter 12, verses, well, chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It almost sounds like a Latin mass there, doesn't it? And his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? No one, no one, no one, no one, right? For, why, was, why is it no one? Because of this. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever, amen. Everything that is, is for him. What do I do in light of that? Therefore, or I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'm beseeching you based on mercies of God that have come to you. The more knowledge we have of what those mercies are, the more inflamed our hearts ought to be. But he says, I beseech you based on that, give yourself away. Present yourself. We, there, matter of fact, there was, there was altar language in number 700. Remember, did you see that, altar language? Some of you might have gone, oh, I don't know about singing about this altar language. Listen where I think they got it from. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, rational service. Based on you taking information in, you go, all right, if he's been that merciful to me, then uh, I can give myself away. I can live different. I can live for him. That's, 
my sermon. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this little benediction at the end of our text today where you say, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Help us to do. Not merely to be blessed, but we do want that kind of blessing. We'd be fools not to want to have that come upon us, which causes a quiet, happy contentment with life in the name of Christ. Surely we want that. But it comes with the knowing and the doing. Help us and bless now as we take the supper together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.